Welcome to Panastoria. I'm Jonah. I'm Lindsay. What's up? How's it going, everyone? Uh, we had we're still kind of coming off of a buzz. We had a really good yeah week. You guys kick ass. We uh we managed to have we went we jumped from 200 downloads to like 320 in like two days basically. It was crazy. It oh, was so absolutely that was all crazy. On Labor Day, which was pretty cool. Yeah, it was a good week. I think we're up to something like 380 now. So like. We're getting really close to some pretty big like goals that we set for ourselves so yeah yeah it's exciting um <laughs> we're, we're pretty i didn't really know what to say when it happened but yeah. thank you guys so much for your support yeah it was a bit shocking i guess and like not in a bad way it's not like to be self-deprecating but like it's pretty exciting <laughs> it's super exciting <laughs> and unexpected and it'd be you know we're our, one of our our first milestones was to reach 500 total downloads and so we're approaching that pretty quickly i guess actually like I thought of this. We should normally we don't like recommend people listen to episodes in order because it doesn't matter that much. But since like today's topic or we're starting the next four episodes are going to be all related and we recommend listening to those in order, I think. Absolutely. And I'm going to there's going to be a disclaimer in every episode, but these episodes get really, 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 really grim. This is probably the darkest topic we're going to be covering so far. We are going in depth and discussing the Yugoslav Wars. Yeah, so definitely recommend that you listen to these ones in order. If you don't listen to any of them in order, that's fine. Just these ones kind of matter because it's it's a little bit chronological and also just extraordinarily complicated. This is an extremely grim series of conflicts that happened all in one region and encompassed every kind of evil that humanity can imagine. And uh, also shout out to Martin Woods, who is a veteran of this this conflict, he served in Croatia. He's, I know him from my hometown and just one of the jobs I was working and got to know him and he's a really good guy and he kind of gave us this idea when I was talking to him about the podcast and Jonah and I thought it was really a great one because it's kind of a conflict that weirdly gets forgotten despite how bloody and insane it was. People, it seems to just not really be relevant in people's minds ever, especially now that places like Croatia are such big holiday spots. <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing is It's kind of weird it just disappeared from two two decades ago these places were completely devastated by war and then suddenly now they're doing quite well. Yeah, they really bounced back from that. They I did. Mean, there's obviously lots of lasting tensions and things, but in terms of like economically and just development wise, they really really bounced back from that. I don't know. I actually think it's weird to me because at the same time, it, like this was happening, Rwanda was also happening, and yet we still remember everyone when you think of Rwanda thinks about the genocide. But very few people, when you mention like Croatia or something like that, really think about this conflict, which I actually find really weird <laughs> because it was also extremely bloody. And at the time, the world paid way more attention to this conflict than Rwanda. <laughs> One of those things that makes very little sense to me. But here we are, and because we cover all history, we're gonna we're gonna cover this particular conflict and hopefully. Hopefully do it justice, but I have to admit, I got a little bit like bogged down in some of the research. It's a bit difficult to keep a few things straight. So if it's hard for you to keep straight, we apologize, but we're doing the best we can. <laughs> it's a complicated series of conflicts. And I also want to quickly mention the day that this episode's coming out, September 17th. Today is the anniversary of the Medak Pocket. And don't really want to get into too many spoilers, but it was a battle between Croatian forces and Canadian forces, part of the UN. It was the first time the UN actually shot, shot back. It was the first time that UN forces engaged in battle. And we're going to be talking about that in the next episode when we cover Croatia. But today we're going to be covering the prelude to the Yugoslavia's downfall, as well as the beginning of the conflicts. And also just stuff about Yugoslavia, because I'm going to assume most of you know Pretty much nothing about Yugoslavia. <laughs> Seems like a Ex song, except this this meme that's been going around. You might know about that, but I was going to use that as the intro, but I felt that would be a bit too disrespectful to do because of how grim this conflict is, and you'll understand. Now we've gone on long enough. I think we can just let's just jump right in. Yeah, Yugoslavia was formed as the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes in 1918 after World War One. So it was a merger of the state of Slovenes, Croats, and Serbs with the formerly independent Kingdom of Serbia. So this country was named after the South Slavic peoples and constituted their first union following centuries in which all these territories were part of the Ottoman and Austro-Hungarian empires, respectively. 
Yeah, it's lo- it's located in the Balkans, the area known as the Balkans in Europe. And well, this is kind of proves why certain federations will never work because of how diverse things are. And this is, Yugoslavia is a good example. It's interesting though because it did work for a while. It did work for a while, but I'll, I'll then, talk about that a bit. Later, yeah, but. but then once it stopped, you'll yeah once it'll become clear why it stopped working, but. In short, there are a bunch of ethnicities there that had a growing amount of nationalism within it, and that not a good federation make. <laughs> None of these ethnicities made up a majority, I should preface with. So anyway, Serbs made up 36.3%. Croats made up 19.7%. And this is interesting. Muslim in the Balkan regions is actually considered an ethnicity, and they made up 8.9%, mostly in Bosnia. They're also known as Bosniak, I believe. Yeah. And Slovenes made up 7.8%, Albanian 7.7%, and the majority of the Albanian population is in Kosovo, still is today. Macedonians made up 6%, Montenegrins made up 2.6%, and the rest of the percentage were made up of various ethnicities, including but not limited to Hungarian, Romani, Turk, Romanian, and Jewish. As you see, Serbia had the largest of the population, but they did not have a majority. (laughs) But the largest population thing will become relevant a bit later. Absolutely. There's also a huge... I didn't get any... Couldn't find any specific stats on this, but there's a major division between the Roman Catholics in areas such as uh, Slovenia and Croatia, the Orthodox in Macedonia, and of course Serbia, and then the Islamic population in Bosnia. So it was a very big divide, and this is just the beginning. Yeah. It was renamed the Kingdom of Yugoslavia in 1929, and it was actually a monarchy, which I thought was actually really interesting because I didn't really think about that. Most times after World War One, monarchies kind of stopped being a thing, not being created. It was very strange. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so the going to skip ahead to the 1930s a little bit. The rise of fascism in Europe was obviously a big thing in the 30s, in Italy especially, Spain and Germany. It wasn't isolated to those places. It kind of spread everywhere. And the rise of fascism started to become noticeable in Yugoslavia. There was a lot of pressure from the fascist powers, like Germany and Italy in particular, against the king in Yugoslavia. And the monarchy did kind of kowtow a little bit to that. They signed the tripartite agreement, and that didn't really do anything, as it turns out, other than kind of ruin the monarchy because it pissed everybody off. So it killed the king's uh, popularity. But other than that, it didn't really save them from being invaded by Germany later, which was the in- intention of signing it in the first place. They didn't really want their country to be destroyed, which is fair enough. But the Axis powers invaded anyways in 1941. <laughs> and in 1943, a democratic federal Yugoslavia was proclaimed by the partisan resistance, which was recognized by the king of Yugoslavia, which meant that that became the government in exile, essentially. That was the recognized government of Yugoslavia, and they were I actually don't know where the king went to, but he was in exile somewhere. I just don't know where. So after the war, the monarchy was abolished and Yugoslavia was renamed the Federal People's Republic of Yugoslavia in 1946 when communism was established. So, I mean, if you want to turn this into a drinking game, just take a shot every time the name of Yugoslavia changes. Um, Because it's a lot, (laughs) as it turns out. In 1946, the new constitution of the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, which is the next name of it, that comes around like in a bit later, though. The, the Constitution was modeled after like, the Constitution of the Soviet Union, which I guess seems hilarious that there's a Constitution, but there was. And it established six republics, an autonomous province, and an autonomous district that were part of the Socialist Republic of Serbia. And the federal capital was Belgrade. So the six republics were Bosnia and Herzegovina, Croatia, Macedonia, Montenegro, Serbia, and Slovenia. And then Kosovo, I believe, became the autonomous province. Mm -hmm. And Vojvodina, I'm probably saying that terribly wrong, was an autonomous district in the Socialist Republic of Serbia. That's actually pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That's good. Yeah, I apologize to any Balkan listeners because I'm probably going to destroy everything and I'm sorry. We both are. Even though I'm I'm part Romanian, I'm going to butcher this. This I apologize. It's difficult. Anyway, so the policy and the main focus of the Constitution focus on a strong central government under the control of the Communist Party and 
also focused on the recognition of the multiple nationalities that existed within the country. The Axis powers, when they were occupying Yugoslavia to go back to the war, <laughs> they decided to actually split Yugoslavia up. So the independent state of Croatia was established as a Nazi satellite state. The Germans occupied Bosnia and Herzegovina as well as part of Serbia and Slovenia, while the other parts of those countries were occupied by Bulgaria, Hungary, and Italy. And the fascist militia in Croatia, called the Ustashi, murdered around 500,000 people, expelled 250,000, and forced another 200,000 to convert to Catholicism in this period. So it wasn't exactly a good time for the Croats. They kind of were basically fascists. Um, the, it wasn't great. But it's not all bad because there was a resistance in Yugoslavia, uh, like most countries in Western in Europe during this time. But the resistance was split into two factions. The more important of the two, well, one of them was called the Chetniks. The other one was called the Partisans, being led by Josip Broz Tito, who is important. The uh, Partisans initiated a guerrilla campaign, which developed into the largest resistance army in occupied Western and Central Europe, which is pretty impressive. And what everyone thinks of the French resistance is the most famous resistance during the war, but the Yugoslavs were were hot on their tails. They probably had a larger force, just less recognized. The other group, the Chetniks, were initially supported by the exiled royal government and the allies, but they soon kind of focused their attention more on actually fighting the partisans rather than the Axis forces. So by the end of the war, they were ultimately a collaborationist Serb nationalist militia, completely dependent on Axis supplies. So they weren't really the greatest of resistance forces, as it turns out. The Allied leaders switched their support from the Chetniks once they realized the extent of their collaboration and decided to support Tito. So King Peter II, the king of Yugoslavia, FDR, Stalin, and Churchill all officially recognized Tito and the partisans at the Tehran conference. This resulted in the Allied aid being parachuted behind Axis lines to help the partisans. So they weren't completely left on their own once they realized that the Chetniks were up to no good helping those Germans. And uh, the Yugoslav partisans were then, as a result of some of the aid, and ultimately their own strength and whatnot, they were able to expel the Axis from Serbia, from Serbia in 1944 and the rest of Yugoslavia in 1945. The Red Army provided actually like very little assistance with the liberation of Belgrade, and once the war was over, they actually withdrew. And that's a really important fact to keep in mind because it actually really influences some like the relationship between Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union kind of coming up here. Yeah, there was an attempt after the war to reunite the partisans and the emirates that were loyal to the king. So basically the partisans followed Tito and he was a communist. And then the, other, the others followed a few different people, but one of them was uh, Subasic. And the king, the government in exile, and the allies really wanted the two factions to kind of unite. They didn't really want to have to choose one. This led to the Tito-Subasic agreement in 1944. But at the end of the day, Tito was in control and was determined to lead an independent communist state which he started as the prime minister. He had the support of Moscow and London and led by far the strongest partisan force with 80,000 men. So this force was organized into the Yugoslav's Pe Yugoslav People's Army and became the fourth strongest army in Europe at the time. Part of the Tito-Subasic agreement was that there was going to be elections held and they were free elections, well, free-ish. Uh, they were basically, the agreement said that we have to have elections because we want people to be able to choose the form of government they want. So on November 11th, 1945, the elections were held with only the communist-led National Front appearing on the ballot. So obviously they won all 354 seats. If you remember the Korean War episode, we talked about the Eastern free elections in quotations. This was part of it. Yeah. So King Peter II was deposed by Yugoslavia's Constituent Assembly and the Federal People's Republic of Yugoslavia was declared. Peter II refused to abdicate, but Tito, also known as Marshal Tito, was now in full control and all opposition elements were eliminated, which was pretty brutal. So T Tito was widely considered a communist leader who was very loyal to Moscow, but Stalin and Tito actually had a really uneasy alliance. From the beginning, they never really trusted each other at all. Stalin thought Tito was too independent, which was kind of the main reason. And um, I'll, there'll be a few things that happen here that'll kind of highlight that. Um, so unlike the communist states in Europe, other communist states in Europe, like I said, Yugoslavia liberated itself essentially from the Axis. They didn't really need that much help from the Red Army. And Tito's leading role in the, liberating, the liberation of the country basically just gave him the greatest PR image you could possibly ask for. Like He was popular amongst politicians and people in the country because he was a great military leader and he, he saved everybody. And he was also popular amongst the people because like 
he saved everybody from those collaborationists and the Germans and Italians and Hungarians and Bulgarians. <laughs> it was some multicultural axis force leading the way, I guess. But yeah, it, it strengthened his position in the party and gave him a ton of goodwill from the people. But it also caused him to be a lot more insistent that Yugoslavia had more room to follow its own interests as a result. So kind of like, hey, we beat the Axis by ourselves, Stalin. We deserve some more autonomy. Like, back off. There, Joe. And despite their alliance, which they did still have, Stalin actually set up a spy ring in the Yugoslav party in 1945, which really is what gave way to the most uneasy, like, really led to this really uneasy alliance. I think that Stalin probably didn't like Tito's independence, but as soon as Tito found out that there was a spy ring, he was like, hmm, not cool, man. Yeah, the, the federal capital of this was Belgrade, or it was in Belgrade, so it was in Serbia, which I guess kind of becomes important later in terms of nationalism. But um, yeah, so the immediate aftermath of the war, there were several armed run-ins between Yugoslavia and its Western allies. And Stalin was pretty uncomfortable with that <laughs> because he felt the USSR was unready to face the West in an open war. And at the time, and especially at that time when the US had operational nuclear weapons, whereas the Soviet Union did not. It had yet to conduct its first test at this point. So those conflicts kind of came as Tito wanted to expand south and take control of Albania and also parts of Greece. And Tito openly supported the communist side of the Greek Civil War, which was happening at this time. And Stalin promised Churchill that he he wouldn't pursue interests there. So Stalin was pretty uneasy with the fact that Tito is like, yeah, communists, go. It just caused a lot of tension. Because Tito wanted to expand to these areas, he formed, or he met with Bulgaria and they signed the Bled Agreement, which meant that Tito would be able to instigate in the civil war in Greece, but he'd be able to use Albania and Bulgaria as military bases. Stalin did not like that. He scuttled it, basically. He said, no, you can't do that. Leave Greece alone. <laughs> and... Uh, the relationship between Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union deteriorated pretty fast. The Soviet Union admonished Yugoslavia for failing to admit and correct its mistakes, which were basically being expansionist and whatnot. And they went on to accuse Yugoslavia of being too proud of their successes against the Germans, maintaining that the Red Army had saved them from destruction. Because, you know, propaganda. It's a thing. Um, Tito's response suggested that the matter be settled at the meeting of the con Common Forum, which basically was a council of all the communist countries in Europe. So basically the Soviet Union and its republics, <laughs> and then the other countries that weren't technically republics. <laughs> but uh, so yeah, it was meant to be, Tito said like, well, we'll settle this there. But he actually decided not to go because <laughs> he feared that Yugoslavia would be openly attacked, which to be fair, it was probably correct. Um, so Tito... Tito distanced himself from the Soviet Union. At first, he went along with the Soviet plan to reject the Marshall Plan aid. So after the war, the Americans were offering countries money to rebuild if they went along with American influence. So the Yugoslavians eventually, at first, were like, yeah, okay, we'll go with the Soviet Union here, you know, communists. But in 1948, when they broke with Stalin on a number of issues, <laughs> Yugoslavia was able to get aid, essentially. From the United States, it wasn't Marshall Plan aid, but it was still aid. Yeah, in 1949, things came to a head, actually, between the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia. It, it, it didn't actually escalate, but it was almost an armed conflict as Hungarian and Soviet forces massed on the northern Yugoslav frontier. Yeah, as I mentioned, the con common form. They expelled Yugoslavia, which effectively banished Yugoslavia from the International Association of Socialist States, while the other socialist states in Europe subsequently underwent purges of alleged Titoists. <laughs> So anybody who was believed to be too independent, basically, is what being a Titoist meant. Like, if you if you sympathize with him and not with Uncle Joe over there in Moscow and you... They were common for him. Yeah, basically. So they, <laughs> all these countries essentially had purges about anybody, with, of anybody who thought that... Um, yeah. And I think that it was probably one of those things where it's like anybody who even potentially, like, thought Tito was good, like, you might not have even had to think it. They might have just been like, well, you're a Titoist. Bye. Look at the parallels between this whole thing going on and when Trotsky was still relevant. Yeah. It's very similar. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's pretty common in pretty much all of these states, like, in different periods. So Stalin actually believed that Tito was the glue that held Yugoslavia together and that if Yugoslavia left, then Tito would collapse. He believed that Yugoslavians thought that the common form and being part of the socialist states was probably a little bit more important to Yugoslavia than he 
thought or he thought that it was more important to them than it actually was. And he thought that by banishing Yugoslavia, Tito would collapse and therefore it would be all over, which he was definitely wrong. Um, but when that happened, Stalin took the matter personally, as Stalin does, and he actually arranged several assassination attempts on Tito, none of which succeeded. Tito actually wrote openly to Stalin, I, like, I really like this, um, he said, quote, stop sending people to kill me. We've already captured five of them, one of them with a bomb and another with a rifle. If you don't stop sending killers, I'll send one to Moscow and I won't have to send a second. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like them's fighting words. Um, <laughs> yeah. Fight, fight, fight. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty, like, bold. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't know how else to put that, but I read that and I was like, dang. <laughs> There's beef there. Holy. Um, <laughs> they had beef. They had beef. They had some serious we're, beef. We're bringing, we're bringing that back. Yep. Um, yeah, I just thought that quote was kind of hilarious. And yeah, so the tension led Tito to crack down on any opponent of his, whether or not they were Stalinists, but mostly anybody who was, who was a Stalinist. Anybody who exhibited any sympathy towards the USSR was repressed. So basically everybody became a political prisoner that had any kind of sympathy towards uh, the Soviet Union. But uh, Tito's break from the USSR, as I mentioned, actually uh, enabled Yugoslavia to obtain US aid, even though it didn't agree to align with them, which was typically a requirement of receiving US aid. That was the whole point of the Marshall Plan was, if you, uh, if you take our aid, then you have to align with us and not the communists. But Yugoslavia decided to not do that and took the money anyway. They received some aid in 1949, in a small amount, and then between 1950 and 1953, they took the most aid from the United States. But once Stalin died, tension with the USSR relaxed a bit because, you know, Stalin was gone. And Tito kind of made some gains with Khrushchev. He refused to go to Moscow when Khrushchev came to power. But Khrushchev, I believe in 1955, came to Belgrade, and there was a meeting. And then eventually Tito went to Moscow, and things cooled which was probably a good thing in all told. It's probably not really great to be beefing with the USSR just because if you're a country the size of Yugoslavia, like, they can crush you. <laughs> um, Wait till we talk about Albania at some point. Yeah. I think all in all, it was honestly probably best for everybody that that relationship cool and not be quite so intense. But it was interesting because once, yeah, once Stalin died and things thawed a little bit and he, he made some gains with Khrushchev, he was actually able to receive aid from the communist states. <laughs> So Tito was pretty clever because he played both sides of this conflict. He got aid from the United States without actually having to align with them, which is pretty rare. And then also, when Stalin died, took their money because him and Khrushchev became <laughs> sort of friends. Uh, I guess. I don't know. I wouldn't say they were friends, probably, but they at least worked together. They weren't sending people to kill each other. I guess that's a sign of friendship. Friends, friends don't send people to kill their friends, do they? Um, Depends. Yeah. Looking at you, America. Yeah, apparently. Anyways, Tito as obviously was quite critical of the Eastern the Eastern Bloc. He he wanted independence and he was pretty critical of that, but he was also really critical of NATO. So essentially Tito didn't like anybody. And in nineteen sixty except India. In nineteen sixty one, uh Tito formed the non aligned movement with India and some other countries mostly in Africa. Egypt. Yeah, and also Ghana. The affiliation with the non-aligned movement was actually the only affiliation of Yugoslavia until it dissolved. Fun fact. Tito was noticeable, or notable, not noticeable, ugh, words. Um, he was notable for pursuing a foreign policy of neutrality during the Cold War, which was kind of his jam, basically. The whole idea of non-alignment is to be neutral. Churchill once said, like, oh, you're, you're neutral on our side. And he, Tito was like, Nope. Nope, I'm not neutral. Like, I'm neutral. And that means not being on anybody's side. Like, back off, Churchill. But actually, the interesting thing was that Tito established a lot of really close ties with developing countries in Africa. He was really close to people in Ethiopia and Uganda, I think. I could be getting this wrong. But anyways, he developed a lot of ties with uh, with countries in Africa, especially. And he had a... I think a lot of that probably honestly stemmed from him having a belief in self-determination. And a lot of these countries were starting to gain their independence at that time. I don't actually have any real research to back this up. This is just kind of me. Oh, there's, there's definitely a parallel. Yeah, like there, a lot of these countries were starting to gain freedom from their colonial oppressors. And so I think that because Tito had such a strong belief in self-determination that he probably wanted to support them. 
and yeah, help them become independent states. And I mean, he probably wanted to spread communism to some extent. I feel like that might have been part of it, but he did actually, weirdly, in many cases, also support anti-communist forces in certain places. Like in Guatemala, he supported anti-communists. So he was like one of the few communist leaders to to actually basically support people who he thought were better, rather whether or not they were communists. He wasn't just like de facto supporting communists. He uh, didn't support Pinochet. There was actually like a a scandal in the government over not supporting Pinochet or something. It was a whole... Do you mean Pinochet or Allende? No, Pinochet, Pinochet. in Chile. There was actually like a, a rift on that conflict, which was interesting. <laughs> so because of its neutrality, Yugoslavia would often be rare among communist countries to have diplomatic relations with right-wing anti-communist governments. For example, Yugoslavia was the only communist country to have an embassy in Alfredo Stresner's Paraguay. One notable exception to Yugoslavia's neutral stance toward anti-communist countries was Chile under Pinochet. Yugoslavia was one of many countries which severed diplomatic relations with Chile after Salvador Allende was overthrown. Yugoslavia also provided military aid and arms supplies to staunchly anti-communist regimes such as that of Guatemala under Kiel Eugenio Garcia. So, interesting. I thought that was actually really fascinating. And also, yeah, just, yeah. Anyways, his foreign policy was was pretty interesting in that sense, but his speeches, as a result, often reiterated that the policy of neutrality and cooperation with all countries could be natural as long as those countries didn't use their influence to try and pressure Yugoslavia to take sides. So it's like, we can get along with all of you, and it's perfectly normal for us to do that, but if as soon as one of you tries to try and like influence us, then things are going to go poorly. And um, I think for the most part, with the exception of Stalin <laughs> being a bit of a dick, it kind of worked. Like Yugoslavia and the United States and Western Europe generally had like decent relations. They were cordial. It's not like they were enemies, but I mean, it's more than the USSR can say for a long time, right? Yugoslavia also was interesting because unlike all of the other communist states, it had a really liberal travel policy. So foreigners were allowed to travel freely within Yugoslavia. And at one point they actually abolished visa requirements. So you could just like go to Yugoslavia because you felt like it. And Yugoslav citizens were allowed to travel worldwide. They were allowed to leave the country. Whereas in the Soviet Union, you weren't allowed to unless you were going to another communist country. And even then, it was, like, really hard. And at a, cer- a certain point, if you wanted to go to the United States, you actually had to, like, give up your, your Soviet citizenship. You had to be claiming asylum. You weren't allowed to just, like, travel. <laughs> it, was, it was a whole, whole thing. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's funny, like, doing, re- doing the research, I saw a whole bunch of... Pro- posters like saying visit yugoslavia and stuff like that and it's just yeah. like a I weird just, way to experience a communist country if you're if you're from the west i mean of course you'd be in areas that are super nice right but yeah. <laughs> i think yugoslavia is like always relied on tourism or like mm-hmm. that area right i yeah. mean it's a beautiful area of the world so why wouldn't you well yeah it's one of those places like on the mediterranean it's warm yeah, I have a friend in Croatia right now. It looks beautiful. Any of our Game of Thrones watchers, a lot of it's filmed in, in Croatia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's really a popular place. And I guess the fact that they had such a liberal travel policy. Honestly, I think that probably benefited Yugoslavia so much more. One, because tourist dollars. But also, like, if you want, you want to show people that communism works, right? That's your goal as a communist. So if you don't let people in, they're never going to know. <laughs> <laughs> like the, they're never gonna know that so that was i thought that was actually the most fascinating like yugoslavia just had definite moments where it was like not like the others <laughs> kind of skipping ahead a little more there were some constitutional changes in 1974 which reduced the role or the it reduced the actual amount of power or power the federal government had and tito also began to kind of reduce his day-to-day like roles in governing the country but he still traveled a lot and was basically kind of like the the figurehead for Yugoslavia at that point he traveled a lot and maintained a lot of really good diplomatic relationships but he took kind of his hands off the wheel a little bit but he became increasingly ill over the course of 1979 and died in 1980 that was a pretty large problem but his it's it's interesting because um Tito's funeral at the time was the largest state funeral in history (laughs) And the concentration of dignitaries that attended would not be matched until the deaths of Pope John Paul II and Nelson Mandela. Oh. Yeah. So Tito's funeral was attended by four kings, 31 presidents, six princes, 22 prime ministers, 47 ministers of foreign affairs, 
and they came from both sides of the Cold War, so both communist and not. And they came from 128 of the 154 countries in the United Nations. Like, that's pretty impressive. And I actually just kind of had a thought, like, the fact that the number of people that came to his funeral was kind of so diverse. In a way, it highlighted to me a little bit how Tito kind of was able to unite, like, very diverse groups of people. Because Tito always made efforts in all of the consultations and all of what he did to try and make sure that all of the republics had fairly equal footing. Like, he, he didn't really play too much into to nationalist sentiments of any other countries. He managed to keep them fairly together. So Tito was kind of the glue that held that together, which is why it really becomes a problem later. But yeah, anyways, after he died, the New York Times actually wrote that, quote, Tito sought to improve life, unlike others who rose to power on the communist wave after World War II. Tito did not long demand that his people suffer for, for a distant vision of a better life. After an initial Soviet-influenced bleak period, Tito moved forward or moved toward radical improvement of life in the country. Yugoslavia gradually became a bright spot in the grayness amid the, amid the grayness of Eastern Europe. So I kind of, I don't know. I feel like it's one of those situations where after somebody dies, you kind of laud, laud them a little bit more than they might have deserved. But there's definitely, I think, some... Um, credit? Credit, yeah. I, uh, he certainly had more... I, I can see how Yugoslavia might be a bright spot in, in, amid the grayness of Eastern Europe. I mean, it was a little bit more like free in terms of people being able to come in and out. He didn't have a very dogmatic policy since he seemed to kind of switch sides a lot, like tried to do their best to maintain neutral and not be too active in ideological conflicts that would get them nowhere. So I thought that was really, that, that line is kind of interesting because I, I think it's probably to some extent fairly true. But I mean, his legacy obviously is a lot more complicated than that because he did do a lot in trying to unify a country that is extraordinarily diverse. He also was responsible for large-scale suppression of human rights and has been implicated in the systematic eradication of ethnic Germans in, the Vo in Vojvodina, because there was a lot of ethnic Germans in that area of Serbia. And he did that with expulsions and mass executions following the collapse of the German occupation of Yugoslavia at the end of World War II. So, like, not all good. <laughs> um, and obviously, I think he put, like, hundreds of thousands of people behind bars for being Stalinist and, you know, not great stuff. Normal things that dictators, dictators do. do. Dictator gonna dictate. Um, <laughs> after he died in 1980 though that's actually when ethnic tensions really started to grow in Yugoslavia so like when I say Tito's the glue that held this together I'm actually not kidding it like literally was after he died things started to get pretty nasty it started happening a little bit like basically the 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 thing that kind of the catalyst I guess to some extent was the the constitution changes in 1984 or 74 sorry because it did reduce the power of the federal government but Tito's authority kind of made up for that. So, which is great, except that now he's dead, and so we don't have that. So the legacy of this constitution was uh, used to throw the system of decision-making into pretty much paralysis mm -hmm. and made all the more hopeless as the conflict of interests really had become irreconcilable. And I found a paper on this, which was really interesting. So in 1986, the Serbian Academy of Sciences and Arts drafted a memorandum addressing some burning issues concerning the position of Serbs as the most numerous peoples of Yugoslavia. The gist of this document is that Serbia felt it was getting screwed by the other republics, despite being the majority. There's a really great quote in this paper. The academic Alexander Pavkovic, his paper is called The Serb National Idea, a Revival, 1986 to 1992. And the draft that we're talking about here by the Academy of Sciences and Arts asserts that the causes of the profound economic and social crisis engulfing Yugoslav society should be sought in the erroneous, irresponsible, and nationally biased policies of the leaders of the Yugoslav Communist Party, which was dominated by a Slovene, Edvard Kardeli, I don't know, uh, and a Croat, Josip Broz Tito. They created a dominating anti-Serb coalition in the Yugoslav Communist Party, which after their death, continued systematically to favor the Slovenian and Croatian national interests over those of the Serbs in constitutional as well as economic matters. So essentially, the problem was how, because all the republics met in a council, like which was essentially the federal government, and how they were able to vote seemed to mean that the Serbs had a disadvantage in numbers. And I tried to sort this out. It was a little bit confusing, but it basically boils down to the fact that despite the fact that the Serbs actually have the most people, they were actually, like, 
not able to vote proportionally as a, or something like that, which for Serbian nationalists was definitely a problem. So enter Slobodan Milosevic, who you're going to hear a lot about in the next three, the next episodes. Not the best person. Tito's death caused a huge problem, but before the problem is before he died, Yugoslavia is entering a series of crises. For example, uh, Tito, one of Tito's things was he rapidly wanted to, he wanted rapid growth in the economy and industry. Because he pushed for this to be done way too quickly, it caused overexpansion, inflation, and a recession. The other problem is then uh, Mikhail Gorbachev's perestroika and glasnost policies started to ease tensions with the West. And so Yugoslavia was no longer seen as strategically important to the West. That was more after Tito died. The other thing is that Reagan's administration pushed to inspire a revolution to overthrow the communist regime through means of economic sabotage. And this was revealed in a declassified document, 1984 National Security Decision Directive, NSDD 133, which was declassified in 1990, I believe. Between 1979 and 1985, earnings throughout Yugoslavia dropped by 25%. There's just one problem is despite the hardships that all these republics are facing, the Serbian working class was still doing well. They were still having a great quality of life. So there was a lot of resentment growing against the Serbs as because there was a perceived sense of favoritism, which was probably correct. Yeah, like that quote said, like, you know, Tito was a Croat and the other guy was a Slovene. So mm-hmm. Serbs kind of feel... Yeah. The other thing is the 1974 Constitution, it created something called the one-year presidency. Mm-hmm. So th- th- the way the one-year presidency works is that, that council, it was of eight representatives, six from the republics, and then two from the autonomous regions. And they would rotate yearly of who had the executive powers. It was supposed to be a way to kind of balance the power between the eight areas, but it caused a massive power vacuum after Tito died because now all of a sudden you got these remaining people wanting to be the successor to Tito. The other thing is that around the time Tito died is there was a weakening in the communist states throughout Eastern Europe and these trickled into Yugoslavia and thus the main branch of the Communist Party, the League of Communists of Yugoslavia, it lost its potency. So it was really, it was kind of like how do I put this? When you have like an old balloon that's still full of air and you put a hole in it and it just really slowly, slowly, slowly deflates. That's what's <laughs> that's what Yugoslavia is at this point. Pretty much. I mean, I feel like anytime you have a dictator for that long, like that's just going to start happening. When you got a dictator in a federation as convoluted and diverse yeah. as yeah, this. Like nothing about this made any sense. And I was like, it's just like trying to sort out how things worked was very difficult. Yeah, it's the solutions, <laughs> which I'm about to get to, make even less sense. <laughs> Literally, they were twiddling their thumbs around for uh, around seven years before they realized, oh yeah, shit, Tito's dead. We really need to find a successor. And they found that in a Serbian communist named Slobodan Milosevic, who Lindsay mentioned. Now, Milosevic, he got his start because he actually was instigating small revolutions in Kosovo, Vojvodina, and Montenegro. And he had the leaders of those places replaced with pro-Serbian ones. And thus effectively gave Serbia a four-lead voting bloc within the League of Communists. See, the way the League of Communists work in Yugoslavia is there is the main branch, the League of Communists of Yugoslavia, but then each of the republics plus the two autonomous regions had their own. <laughs> so by effectively doing this, he gave himself a good majority in the voting block. Yeah, he basically was then guaranteed four votes because he was guaranteed Serbia, Kosovo, and... Uh, Vovodinia and Montenegro. And Montenegro. The Albanian population did not make up a huge percentage of the population throughout Yugoslavia. In Kosovo, they made up 77% of the population to have a outright majority of Albanian Kosovo people to be now ruled by Serbs, which did not have that big of a population didn't sit well with them. They were now oppressed and it resulted in a massive minor strike in 1989. 
Two other republics, which were Croatia and Slovenia, they were absolutely outraged that this happened, of course. And they actually expressed their support for the miners, as well as the preservation of Kosovo and Vojvodinian autonomy. And they actually sent them aid. Another thing to note, I thought this was really funny, the Slovenian media, actually, they started comparing Milosevic to Mussolini. And also the Slovenian League of Communists began to advocate for separation. So because of all these tensions between the republics and the clear cracks within the federation starting to show, the League of Communists called a Congress, and it was the 14th of its kind. And this was just so all representatives from the League of Communists can get together and sort out any issues whether it was for the, towards the constitution or any disagreements between what was going on between the republics. This was held between January 20th and 22nd, 1990. It was supposed to be longer. So it was in, in order to attempt to resolve these growing issues. Well, the Serbian delegation, they naively believed that there would be cooperation with, between the blocs. Of course, the Serbian delegation was led by Milosevic. Slovenia immediately started to clash with Serbia over disagreements with the path, with what they wanted the path of Yugoslavia to be. For example, Serbia wanted more centralization into the government where most of like most to everything that would be decided amongst the republics would be done in Belgrade in Serbia with one man, a one man, one vote policy on the board while Slovenia and the other republics wanted further autonomy and, and possible sovereignty to work more as a as a what's known as a confederation, where it's a loosely associate. It's it's pretty much the same thing as a federation, but they're very very loosely connected, and they can literally break away at any time. Well, obviously Milosevic did not want this, so all of the Slovene proposals were rejected by Ser the Serbian voting bloc, and all of Serbia's were approved just with those four votes. After two days, Slovenia just up and left, didn't say a word. They all just got up and left the meeting. Well, Milosevic attempted to continue the Congress, but Croatia instantly snapped at this and said, no, we cannot continue. It's unconstitutional because so Slovenia is not here. Milosevic looked like thought he was being clever and he asked Croatia, what would it take for the Congress to continue. Funnily enough, Croatia replied, the Slovenian delegation. <laughs> the Croatian delegation threatened to leave if the Congress attempted to continue. Milosevic didn't take them seriously and he continued. Well, there's a great video of this. I'll, I'll find it. But um, all of the, all of a sudden, all of the republics that weren't in the Soviet bloc kind of get up and walk behind Milosevic and start talking amongst themselves and then all of a sudden they break take their stuff and they all leave the meeting every single republic left the meeting except for Serbia so of course the congress was called off for today and was going to reconvene tomorrow but suddenly they realize oh all of the other delegations have left so we can't continue the congress it was the last congress between the League of Communists because after that the League of Communists pretty much ceased to exist this ended 81 years of existence and 45 years of rule. Well, after this, the republics held multi-party democracies for the first time in their entire history. Except Serbia. Except Serbia, yeah. I mean, in Serbia, it was a free, fair election in quotations. Only after they felt forced, though. Yeah. Well, they all were held at different times, but nationalist parties won in four out of the six republics. And as you can guess, that was Slovenia, Croatia, Macedonia, and Bosnia. Milosevic won again in Serbia, and Kosovo and Montenegro were dominated by the Serb. It was still League of Communists of Serbia there. As you can imagine, this caused a lot of problems because now the country is really actually starting to splinter. So the Croatian Democratic Union took power and it was led by a controversial man named Franjo Tudman and he vowed to protect Croatians from Serbia and advocated for full Croatian sovereignty. The Croatian Serbs were not happy about this and were very concerned about Tudman and his nationalistic ideas because there's still a lot of memory from the Nazi puppet state back in the during the war because Croatia actually were 
conducting a genocide against ethnic Serbs. Well, Milosevic fueled this worry by using that kind of rhetoric to rally Serbian Croats to oppose the new government. And at the same time, Serbia mass printed a bunch of Yugoslav currency and then flooded Croatia with it, about $1.8 billion worth, and that caused massive inflation. Well, the Croatian Serbs in Nin and Dalmatia, they began seeking and gaining arms in order to form their own armed revolt against Croatia, the Croatian government. And then on August 17, 1990, the Serbian Autonomous Oblasts of Karenia, Western Slavonia, and Eastern Slavonia, Baranja, and Western Sirmna, and Western Sirmina, I'm just going to call it Eastern Slavonia from now on. They began an uprising, and it was known as the Log Revolution because they began setting up roadblocks uh, throughout the region of Dalmatia, which is that little panhandle that kind of goes down the side along the coast. And the way they would make these barricades is they were cutting down trees and using logs to barricade the road. Croatian Special Forces, they began airlifting they began airlifting through with helicopters to end the revolt but suddenly they were intercepted by the yugoslav air force and forced to return the base so now it became clear that the yugoslav people's army were aiding the revolt in order to improve relations with the croatian serbs croatia adopted what is known as the christmas constitution which expanded the special status of serbs in croatia as a recognized nation However, the tensions remained between Serbia and Croatia, and by now the Yugoslav wars had begun because there have been, throughout 1991, the beginning of 1991, Croatia and Yugoslav forces were beginning to clash. But as we're about to find out, the big first major war happened in Slovenia. On December 23rd, 1990, Slovenia held an independence referendum. It passed with 95.71% of the vote, with a turnout of 90.83%. So it was very clear that they wanted to leave. The Slovenian parliament followed on June 25th, 1991, by declaring independence for Slovenia. And on the same day, Croatia actually declared independence from Yugoslavia. Now, the Yugoslav forces knew that they were going to declare independence, but they thought they were going to only declare it the next day, so they were not ready. And this gave t- Slovenia a 24-hour head start in securing its borders. Now, there is a big division in Yugoslavia of what to do. For example, the Yugoslav People's Army, or YPA, Chief of Staff, Lagio Adzek, favored a massive military invasion, so just basically line everyone up and go in and just retake Slovenia as quickly as possible. But the Defense Minister, Velko Kaj... Kaj- oh, God... Velko Kajevic wished to be more cautious in the approach, believing a show of force would be enough for Slovenia to retract its independence declaration. The Yugoslav People's Army's 13th Corps went to the border of Italy and Slovenia in preparation to move in. When this happened, local Slovenes actually reacted by barricading the streets and demonstrating, but both sides did not want to be the first to fire the first shots. While this was happening, Slovenia actually acted quickly to secure its borders. And this was quite easy because the majority of the border guards in Slovenia were Slovene. So all they had to do was take off their uniforms, put on new uniforms and change the insignia and they were done. That was it. Their borders are secure. Now, the first shots would be fired by Yugoslavia, by some office. All I could find the information is that a lone officer fired the first shots with this pistol. Tanks, APCs, and anti-air units from the YPA moved across the border into the areas surrounding Slovenia's capital of Ljubljana. Sorry, Slovenia. Surrounded the capital of Ljubljana. Their mission was to take the Brnik airport. It succeeded. Yugoslav Air Force also dropped leaflets saying, we invite you to peace and cooperation and all resistance will be crushed. Yugoslav Special Forces were being airlifted by helicopter into Slovenia. While Slovenia ordered the helos to turn around or they would be shot down, Yugoslavia ignored them because they didn't believe they would actually do anything. Instead, what happened is the Slovenes shot down two of the helos and killed all of those on board. And it's worthy to note that one of the pilots was a Slovene because the YPA had people from all over 
Slovenian territorial defense, known as the TO, they besieged several barracks, launched attacks across Slovenia on YPA forces, and were generally successful. However, the overall day victory was for the YPA because they managed to capture most of the of their objectives along the Italian and Austrian borders. I think only three they weren't able to get to in time. On June 29th, the TO began a general offensive against YPA. YPA tank columns were attacked in Pesnisa and unable to advance due to roadblocks, so they were trapped. So the roadblocks kind of actually worked. This is here's the interesting thing: is that you got to remember the YPA is much larger army than Slovenia. A lot of the Slovenian army, like territorial defense, were defectors from the Yugoslav army stationed in Slovenia, I should say. And also, the TO and the Slovenian police actually joined forces and managed to take back the border crossings that were taken the day before. So everyone was fighting, everyone was pitching in to help out, even if it was just civilians throwing rocks and putting up log barricades, it was working. In the same day, an airstrike killed four civilians who were blockading the road with their trucks. A skirmish at the Holmick crossing resulted in two Slovenian and three YPA soldiers killed and 98 YPA POWs. By the day's end, the YPA lost much of their gained ground. Many of them actually said, fuck it, I'm out, and left, and a lot more actually switched sides. The next day, the European community began to kind of panic. The European community is the predecessor to <laughs> the EU. They began to panic, and they also set up diplomatic efforts to end the war. Several EC foreign ministers met with Slovenian and Yugoslav representatives in Zagreb, Croatia's capital. They were able to make and form an agreeable ceasefire plan, but it wasn't implemented. While these talks were going on, the TO managed several military victories, and they recaptured the Ljubljana airport. Several YPA tanks were captured in the north and put into service by the TO. YPA special forces were also repulsed in an ambush by Slovenians at Hrvati, or hold on, Hrvatini. I'm so sorry. Yeah, we suck at this. <laughs> we don't mean any disrespect. We're just incompetent. Yeah. The YPA, even though they gained, had a lot of losses that day, they still issued an ultimatum to Slovenia and their demands, including a cease of hostilities by 9 a.m. the next morning. The Slovenian assembly agreed that they needed to come to a peaceful solution, but they did not want to threaten Slovenian independence. And so they rejected the ultimatum. June 30th, not much significant happened. There was just skirmishes all day. July 1st, the YPA leadership requested permission to increase the intensity of the attack, knowing its slow invasion had failed. However, interesting, and they were all prepared to do it. They were ready to do it, and they were, sorry, Slovenia, but they would have, if they had done this, they would have, you would have been defeated. But Slobodan Milosevic denied them the request. Now, the worst day of the fighting was on July 2nd, there was an attack on the Domzal radio transmitter. YPA convoys came under attack in the Krakovo forest and were forced to surrender. YPA forces attempted to move through Jestobrasko, Croatia, but the force well, were forced to retreat, not only by TO soldiers, but by Croatian soldiers. And the TO managed to take back several border crossings. Slovenian president's office calls for a unilateral ceasefire, but it's rejected by the YPA, who vows to destroy the Slovenian resistance. On July 3rd, there was continued skirmishes, but a ceasefire was finally announced between the two. Between the 4th and 6th of July, YPA forces quickly withdrew from Slovenia and regrouped. When they left, the TO managed to regain control of all of their border crossings and secure everything within their borders. So the YPA were prepared, prepared for a second invasion and were ready to go. They were going to win. But then Milosevic denied the request and ordered forces to withdraw from the border. And the reason why is because Milosevic didn't care about Slovenia remaining a part of Yugoslavia because there are only 2.5% Serbian population in Slovenia. So he didn't care. So Yugoslavia actually recognized Slovenia as independent. But because this happened, is suddenly Croatia... Bosnia, Macedonia, they're all like, oh shit, we got in it, we're independent now. And then Milosevic is like, wait, 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 what? No, 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 no. 
That's not what I said. Milosevic definitely did not want Yugoslavia dissolved. And thus, the Yugoslav wars have begun. It's going to get a lot worse from here. This was the least devastating of the conflicts. And again, it's called the 10-Day War because it lasted exactly 10 days. Rarely did that ever happen. Yeah. I mean, there's been numerous short wars, but which I won't go into, but they managed, yeah, they managed to gain their independence within 10 days. And yeah, that's the beginning of the Yugoslav Wars. I guess that's gonna, we're just gonna leave it there for now. We're gonna be back in a couple weeks with Croatia. The coming weeks, it's gonna get brutal. Again, I'm gonna say this now. If you're not comfortable with extremely graphic detail of what has happened, then you probably shouldn't be listening to these. If you're okay with it, that's fine. We're not going to sugarcoat this because I feel, we feel, I should say rather, that if we sugarcoat this, it's dis- right. it's disrespectful to those who suffered through these. It doesn't do the conflict any justice, which, yeah. It's hard to do justice to this war just because of how brutal it is. I mean, we'll get into it, but yeah, it's still having somewhat of an impact today. Yeah, there's still tension in the area and general hangovers from all of this. It's not like it really happened that long ago in reality. Yeah. But sugarcoating it wouldn't really do anything to help anybody understand what happened or anybody uh, who suffered through it. Or and Yeah, <laughs> we don't really like to sugarcoat history in general, but this is a particular t- period of time that honestly could probably uh, use a little bit of sugarcoating just to like get over some of the uh, the brutality. But we're not gonna do that. So if uh, yeah, if you're not comfortable with with really nasty things, we recommend maybe listening with caution. Some actual trigger warning buzzwords or things like ethnic cleansing. <laughs> so. Yeah, <laughs> if you're not comfortable with that, which to be fair, no one really should be. But if you're not comfortable listening to it, then we understand. But keep it in mind. <laughs> yeah, as historians, we look we look at some of the darkest points in history, and unfortunately, this is part of it, and something that we have to acknowledge happened. And in order to learn from it, we need to go back and look at it in every detail possible. Just before we leave, I'd like to say to the veterans who are at Medak, um, major respect to you. Not just at Medak, but in that whole conflict. Who any if you're in the peacekeeping corps or anything, massive respect. I understand that you have unseen scars and. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that happened to you. I'm sorry for the things you saw. I hope you're able, you've been able to heal as best as you can. Because I know you'll never be able to fully heal from something like that. But I hope you've been able to find peace and find happiness in life again. And major respect to all of you. And I hope you're all doing well today. With that said, uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back in a couple weeks with the Croatian War of Independence. Yeah, and uh, in the meantime, it feels weird to add some shameless self-promoting here, but we have to. Um, definitely please check us out on Facebook and Instagram, as well as our Patreon account. We really appreciate you, Brian. You are the only one still, but uh, you're a hero. Um, <laughs> but yeah, check it out, and... Uh, Give us give us a hand with maintaining our ability to do this podcast. We'd like to be able to release episodes more consistently now, but to do that requires a lot more a lot more time. So, yeah, <laughs> any help anyone can provide us financially or otherwise is excellent. We appreciate you all for listening, and uh, let's get to our next download milestone. Absolutely. If you also have any information that you feel is beneficial to our research in the upcoming episode please get in contact with us over the fa- over facebook i'm sure some of you have our 
uh, have our phone numbers so you can just text us. We are happy to talk to you and we are happy to hear what what information you might have on this. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff we're actually not really going to be able to cover because otherwise we would turn into, yeah, this would be way too long. There's some things that we just can't can't hit. You can't talk about everything as much as we're going to try, but to help us not overlook something really important, definitely get in touch. Um, also, if we missed something in today's episode... Also, be in touch. Yeah, be in touch. <laughs> Let us know. We'll probably, if we hear anything, we'll make a correction in when we record next week i don't know but anyway thank you so much did you have anything else to say nope it's a good place to good place to end it okay well thank you for listening uh see you next episode with croatia this is jonah signing off thank you guys so much have a good day